was no good at the reunion. It was impossible not to notice. Expressionless men and women in formal attire circulated with trays of Cheetos, pork rinds, trail mix. One of the trays contained nothing but single-serve ketchup packets. Another contained both goldfish crackers and actual goldfish. Those of us in attendance mingled in packs, nibbled on Cheetos, shook each other's orange-coated hands. If someone had kids, we talked about the kids. If someone had a significant other, we talked about the significant other. If someone had neither kids nor significant other, we discussed the food. Johnny Zalewski said he'd overheard that the catering company's owner was an alum, Martin something or other, class of 96. Moira Pennington said she'd overheard that Martin had catered his own late wife's funeral in January and had it been the same since. Moira had played Marion the Librarian in our school's Fall 99 production of The Music Man and was now a social worker in Chicago. Johnny Zalewski had been our senior class treasurer and was now a junior realtor in Dubuque. Johnny asked us if we wanted to see a for sale sign with his face on it, and everyone nodded, yes. He explained that the signs were only prototypes. As a junior realtor, he wasn't yet allowed to put his face on his company signs, but we said that was okay. We still wanted to see them. Johnny's face brightened. A caterer offered us evaporated milk, still in the can, and we politely refused. Johnny said to follow him into the parking lot. The for sale signs were in the back of his truck. Black was in at the reunion. The men favored black suits, black shoes, black socks, black ties. The women wore black skirts, black tops, black tights, little black dresses. Carl Finkelstein said that technically black couldn't be in because there was no such color as black. Black was the absence of color. What we called black was really a dark shade of gray. Wally Mulrooney called Carl a liar. What color are my socks, Carl? said Wally. Gray, said Carl. Fuck you, said Wally. Wally had always hated Carl. It was just like old times. In the parking lot, we gathered around Johnny Zalewski's truck, a Ford pickup, cherry red. It had 90,000 miles on it, According to Johnny, none of us checked the odometer. We took Johnny at his word. The four sale signs were in the pickup bed. There were 15 to 20 signs, all identical. Johnny said they cost him a pretty penny at Kinko's. The signs featured a full-color headshot of Johnny, the words for sale in an attractive font, and the name, phone number, and web address of Johnny's brokerage. We told Johnny the signs were very nice, and he said, wait until you see this. He climbed into the pickup's cab and emerged
emerged with five large stickers, which he said had been custom screen printed on premium vinyl with removable adhesive. The stickers said, Sold by Johnny Zalewski, the real estate king. One sweet day, said Johnny, gazing at the stickers admiringly. One sweet day. banquet hall called the Chandler Room. Chandler had been a very important man, locally, for reasons no one could remember. There was a beautiful oil painting of Chandler in the hotel lobby. Chandler posed in between two American flags and in front of a magnificent, roaring waterfall. A plaque beneath the painting was engraved with Chandler's famous last words, which were, Continental breakfast is served daily from 6 to 9.30 a.m. in the rotunda. The prom queen was at their union, so was the homecoming queen, and so were the runners-up. There was still bad blood between the queens and the almost queens. The voting had been controversial and so they mingled at opposite ends of the Chandler room, deliberately avoiding each other. The queens wore their tiaras, and the almost queens said no to Cheetos and trail mix, and glared. The prom queen had been a mythic figure ten years ago. She was the subject of countless rumors, the source of endless debate. It was said she had lost her virginity as a freshman, the captain of the varsity basketball team, the night of the spring athletic awards dinner. It was said she had lost her virginity as a sophomore to the entire varsity hockey team as the team's equipment manager taped the whole thing with a school media lab camcorder. It was said she could speak to animals. It was said she was a lipstick lesbian, that she was addicted to crystal meth. Who knew what was fact, what was fiction? It was said she was a sadomasochist, a somnambulist, a socialist, a soliloquist, a sophist, a sartorialist, a ventriloquist. It was said she refused to recognize daylight savings time. It was said she had slept with the local NBC affiliate's weatherman the night of his award-winning coverage of the 99 flash floods. The homecoming queen had been less mysterious. It was agreed by all that she had lost her virginity to her then-boyfriend, Cliff Desmond, on Flag Day, the summer after her junior year. It was agreed by all that this was why, after she was unceremoniously dumped by Cliff the following winter, she always teared up while reciting the opening lines of the Pledge of Allegiance during first period. It was agreed by all that she was five foot six, that her favorite food was cheesecake, that her favorite beverage was carbonated, that her favorite color was unimaginative, that she enjoyed multi-camera sitcoms, that she seldom contemplated death, that she feigned enthusiasm for blowjobs, that she chronically misspelled the word there, 
that her favorite song had spent at least seven weeks on the Billboard Top 20, that if she had been allowed to name her family's cat, she would have named it Boots, or possibly Mitzi, that she was afraid of thunderstorms, that she didn't have a favorite type of wood, that she was dissatisfied with all but 10% of her genetic facial traits, that if she ever got a tattoo, it would involve ornate calligraphy in a language she didn't speak. But could we all have been mistaken? Could 427 graduating seniors have been wrong? Was she who we said she was, or was she someone else entirely? The homecoming queen eyed us suspiciously. Who was she, and did she know what we thought? Another was how many receding hairlines. 
another was who has married into wealth. These games were purely subjective, of course. It would have been impolite to ask the contestants of who has gained the most weight, for instance, to provide the last ten years of their medical records, or to stand on a scale, even though Boljaworski said he had one in the trunk of his car. A game we used to play in high school was Hawaii. The rules of Hawaii were you had to come to school every day in the winter wearing nothing but cargo shorts, open-toed sandals, and a Hawaiian shirt, no matter how cold it got outside. Any other article of clothing, hat, mittens, parka, etc., got you disqualified. The big winner of Hawaii senior year was Dirk Knobloker, who lasted until February 4th, when the wind chill hit 30 below. The big loser was Lou Francini, who contracted frostbite and had several toes amputated. Lou was at the reunion, mingling, eating trail mix, flirting with Molly Zawicki, an old flame. The DJ played Lou Bega's Mambo Number no. 5, and Molly asked Lou to dance, but he said no. It turns out a few toes are more important than you think. flames and there were new flames at the reunion. The new flames required introduction. This is Barbie. This is Walter. This is Peaches. This is Sven. While the old flames were remembered fondly by all. They smiled at each other coyly, the old flames. They hugged each other, pecked each other, clasped Cheeto-covered hands. New flames were introduced to old flames and the old flames wondered whose flame had burned brighter. Was it the old flames in school hallways, beneath bleachers, in movie theaters, back seats, behind the KFC? Or the new flames in college dorm rooms, downtown condos, dive bars, duplexes, dance clubs, cheap motels, Sometimes the new flames knew about the old flames, but usually they did not. Usually all they knew was, this is Deborah, this is Peter, this is Sunflower, this is Chuck. Attendance was average at the reunion somewhere between 20 and 30 percent, according to Marsha Feathers, who gave everyone their name tags at the same table where we could enter a raffle for floorboards from our old gym. Plenty of people were too busy for the reunion. Others lived too far away or couldn't scrounge up the money or could care less about reconnecting with the protagonists and antagonists of their youth. Some people didn't come because they considered themselves to be failures. They just couldn't bear to answer, 100 to 150 times, the question, So, what do you do? Some people were in jail, or prison, or rehab. 
some people were dead. Of course, that didn't stop Jacob Stinsler. Jacob's parents loaned his cremation urn to his best friend, Doug Weisenhut, and now Jacob's ashes were making the rounds across the banquet hall, the urn adorned with a name tag and included in an endless series of group photos. Jacob's ashes hoisted aloft by Scott Olerud, Jacob's ashes kissed by Donna Nimkova and Becky Greeley, Jacob's ashes resting on a catering tray garnished with funyuns and pork rinds, Jacob's ashes entering the raffle. Nine years ago, many of us had attended Jacob's funeral. He had died, unexpectedly, of a brain aneurysm in his sleep. His funeral was our first reunion. We mingled outside the church after the service and filled in the past year's blanks for each other as Jacob's family thanked us for coming and bawled damp Kleenex in their hands. In the years that followed, the class of 2000 further dwindled. There was a suicide, a drug overdose, a grisly car accident, but these classmates had not been as well-liked as Jacob. They were loners, or they spoke a little English. Plus, of course, we had all drifted deeper into our post-curricular lives, and so most of us did not attend their funerals. Their passing, if even acknowledged, was soon forgotten. Their deaths inspired no reunions. six o'clock, the caterers disappeared from the Chandler room. When they returned, minutes later, they had trays of caviar, foie gras, port salut, oysters Rockefeller, steak tartare, chateaubriand, and beluga, and they did not have pants. We had mixed feelings about this. We were pleased with the dramatic leap in food quality, Everyone agreed that the port salute was particularly excellent, but we were uneasy about the caterer's naked calves and thighs. It seemed like a breach of decorum to know which of the caterers preferred boxers, which preferred thongs, which preferred leopard print boy short panties, which preferred briefs. Backsides, bulges, bikini lines, and plain view. We ate the caterer's food, ate it warily. There was no telling what the dress code was like in the prep room. Rumors continued to swirl concerning the catering company's owner. It was said he was addicted to painkillers. It was said he dabbled in Santeria, that he was a student of the occult. It was said that when he had attended our high school from 92 to 96, he had run a successful hand jobs for five paragraph essays ring out of a seldom-used service elevator near the gym until an English teacher's investigation of a suspiciously well-written Beowulf essay led to the ring's spectacular demise. The owner was not present at the reunion, however, and the caterers gave no clues as to his whereabouts. Beluga is all the caterers said. Port Salute. Oysters Rockefeller. Foie Gras.
was alcohol at the reunion. A bartender served it to us in three-ounce Dixie cups. Some of us were dismissive of the Dixie cups, others were not. Alcohol is alcohol, said Darren Schnellenberger, who drank five three-ounce shots of Port and Tonic in under a minute. Besides Port and Tonic, there were many other kinds of alcohol available. The bartender filled our Dixie cups with rum, with vodka, with whiskey, chardonnay, strawberry daiquiri, peppermint schnapps, a light blonde Belgian ale. Barry Orenstein, senior class secretary, was a noted cocktail enthusiast and did his best to stump the bartender with his requests. Brandy Alexander, said Barry Orenstein, and the bartender said, Sorry, I have no half and half. Harvey Wallbanger, said Barry Orenstein, and the bartender said, Sorry, I have no Galliano. Studs Turkle, said Barry Orenstein, and the bartender said, Sorry, that is not a real drink. Hey, you're good, said Barry Orenstein, as he tipped the bartender one dollar. Alcohol was a wonderful conversation starter. It transformed the taciturn into the loquacious, the meek into the wild at heart. Nell McPherson, who founded the Amnesty International Club her senior year, giving a lost Clint Eastwood impersonator a lap dance. Jill Harrington, our class's salutatorian, doing body shots off a lost Fabio impersonator's hairless chest. Of course, not everyone drank alcohol. June Carmichael was pregnant, so her Dixie cup contained mineral water. Steve Heisler was in AA, so his Dixie cup contained Sprite. Elaine Steinbacher was on antidepressants, so her Dixie cup contained peach fresca. Javi Rodriguez loved tomato juice, so his Dixie cup contained tomato juice. There was no alcohol at the Midwest Celebrity Impersonators Association's annual retreat, and so more and more impersonators crashed the reunion. They stole name tags from the raffle table when Marsha Feathers wasn't looking and ordered cocktails with the voice of Rodney Dangerfield, Sammy Davis Jr., Jimmy Stewart, Elmer Fudd. The Sonny Bono impersonator returned and said he couldn't find a share, but he did have the numbers of 23 different shares stored in his Blackberry and could probably get a share to sing I Got You Babe on speakerphone if we wanted. We said, no, that's okay, and Sonny's face drooped with disappointment. A James Bond impersonator ordered a martini shaken, not stirred, and the bartender said, sorry, I have no ice. Whether we drank alcohol at the reunion or not, there was no denying that alcohol had played a pivotal role in our class's collective history. Had there been no alcohol, Clint Proudhorse never would have sucker-punched Dexter Copeland during morning announcements. Dexter Copeland never would have barbecued our school mascot on the Chancellor Street lawn. And Chancellor Street never would have been decorated with flowers, photographs, and cards in the aftermath of Paul Oldenfeld's fiery, fatal junior year crash. Alcohol was drunk at the reunion for recreation. It was drunk for distraction, for relaxation, for courage, for comfort, but it was also drunk for nostalgia. 
Melissa Kreisberg drank three ounces of wild turkey and recalled the first time Sam Levinson told her he loved her. Sam Levinson drank three ounces of wild turkey and recalled the first time Audrey Kiefenheimer let him touch her naked breast. Johnny Zalewski drank four three-ounce Dixie cups of rye whiskey and asked us if we wanted to see a for sale sign with his face on it. We told him he had already shown us the sign, and he said, hold on, he'd be right back. The signs were in the back of his truck. By 6.30, almost all the registered guests had arrived. Most of the latecomers' name tags had been stolen by celebrity impersonators, and so the latecomers were issued blank replacement name tags on which they could write their names in magic marker. The one name tag that remained unclaimed on Marsha Feather's table said D. Schwarzkopf. No one could remember who D. Schwarzkopf was. Amy Cavanaugh thought D. Schwarzkopf might have been that weird kid with the fedora who always ate lunch alone in the science wing stairwell. Lester Yeomans thought D. Schwarzkopf might have been that goth chick with the choker collar who seemed to be perpetually smoking on the Chancellor Street lawn. Julie Wang pointed out that if D. Schwarzkopf was a woman, Schwarzkopf could be her husband's last name, in which case our only clue to her identity would be the mysterious letter D. Diane Perlmutter, yelled Paulina Barrios. No, she was in the class behind us. You're thinking of her sister Trisha, said Meg Frampton. Dahlia Cosrepoor, yelled Iris Clausen. No, her husband's last name is Lundquist. He owes me $73, said Ivan Duplass. Dolores Christensen, yelled Gerardo Trujillo. No, she's not married. She's sleeping with my supervisor at Applebee's, said Mary Jo Heidecker. Deirdre Leach, yelled Tommy Tarango. No, that's me, said Deirdre Leach. D. Schwarzkopf wasn't the only classmate who had been forgotten. There were so many unfamiliar faces, so many unfamiliar names, so many people who asked us, remember me? To whom we replied yes, only out of propriety. Sensing this, the celebrity impersonators who had snatched up our classmates' name tags began impersonating our classmates in an attempt to avoid being tossed out by reunion organizers and thereby maintain access to the open bar. A Groucho Marx impersonator became Ian Meyer Livingston by removing his fake eyebrows and mustache. A Barbara Streisand impersonator became Maria de la Spada by removing her prosthetic nose. A Michael Jackson impersonator was asked to leave by a reunion organizer and said, I am D. Schwarzkopf, 
I am D. Schwarzkopf, said a Pee Wee Herman impersonator. I am D. Schwarzkopf, said a man impersonating Carmen Miranda in drag. A JFK impersonator became Travis Drozdowitz by dropping his Boston patrician accent. A Madonna impersonator became Alessandra Sargenopoulos by covering up her cone bra with a makeshift tablecloth shawl. In addition to the fake celebrities, there was a real celebrity at the reunion. We had known him in high school as Dwayne Smith, but the world now knew him as Illa de Murder. Illa de Murder had initially gained fame as a rapper, but more recently he had branched out into acting. He was starring as Sam Spade in the upcoming remake of the remake of The Maltese Falcon. Illidee Murder's name tag had been stolen, and so he wrote Illidee Murder on his replacement name tag with blue magic marker. We assumed this meant we weren't supposed to call him Dwayne. A member of Illidee Murder's posse ordered a three-ounce Dixie cup of Hennessy from the bar and spotted a Liberace impersonator wearing Illidee Murder's name tag. Yo, Illa, said the posse member, want me to beat this fool's frilly lily-white ass? Nah, it's cool, said Dwayne Smith. Can't blame a man for wanting to be Illa the Murderer. People came to the reunion from far and wide. Amarillo, Virginia Beach, Toronto, Tucson, Cape Canaveral, the Lesser, Antilles. They also came from near and thin. Marcus Lepesca came from Maple Street, a few blocks away. He still lived there with his parents. Todd Lombardo came from room 213. His apartment was being fumigated. Rodney Feldman was one of the caterers. He had forgotten to ask off of work. Rodney wore gray Calvin Klein boxer briefs and carried a tray of tomato bruschetta. Rodney's manager allowed Rodney to eat the bruschetta off his tray as consolation, but Rodney only managed a few measly nibbles. Anyone could tell his heart wasn't really in it. At 6.45, the reunion suffered its first major setback when the bartender ran out of Dixie Cups. Indignation rippled through the crowd. Unforgivable, said Lori Baumgartner to Felicia Walgenbach. How do they expect us to make it through this thing sober? Of course, many of us were not sober, and even more of us were resourceful. Kylie Lachance, for instance, drank malt liquor out of a hotel flower pot. Mark Verisi drank Jamaican rum out of a shoe. Glenn Van Sicklin did body shots of tequila off of Daisy Rosenblum. Alcohol is alcohol, said Darren Schnellenberger, who chugged Jack Daniels straight from the bottle. Among the ranks of the intoxicated were the prom and homecoming queens and the runners-up. The runners-up were intoxicated enough to challenge the queens to a rematch, and the queens were intoxicated enough to accept. The runners-up knew they would never win another popularity contest, and so they demanded that the rematch involve a series of physical challenges. The queens knew they would never win a series of physical challenges, 
and so they demanded that the rematch also involve a battle of wits. After a brief argument and sporadic profanity, both sides agreed to each other's terms, and former class president Isaac Zeichner was selected as moderator. The first physical challenge was a mile run. Isaac Zeichner borrowed the DJ's microphone and asked if anyone had a tape measure. Bull Jaworski said he had a metric ruler in the trunk of his car, and Isaac Zeichner said that would do. At seven o'clock, dinner was served. The caterers carried their trays of appetizers to the prep room and re-emerged with our main courses slung over their shoulders. Rabbit, grouse, squirrel, beaver, turtle, alligator, baby deer. We were horrified. A caterer in blue velour panties deposited a baby deer on one of the circular dining tables, and a small child began to cry. But what about the vegetarian option? protested Nyla Zeffirelli. A caterer in plain white fruit of the looms said, Just one minute, and returned with an armful of pine cones. This was the last straw for Darlene Kleinhofer. She angrily swept the pine cones off of her plate and demanded to speak to the caterer's manager. The caterer in flannel boxers said, Just one minute, and returned with a mustache drawn on his face with magic marker. Oui, bonjour, I am the manager, said the caterer with a French accent. Food is food, said Darren Schnellenberger, who carved himself a healthy hunk of a beaver's tail. As we stared perplexedly at our dinner, Jacob Stinsler's cremation urn was passed from table to table. He was photographed with Joe Lutnick and his new wife Pam, Marion Casales and her two children, Harper and Joel, Vince Strickland and a woman named Brandy Vince had met at the regional airport. Oksana Gazniev cried while posing with Jacob's ashes. She had been Jacob's prom date senior year. She and Jacob had never formally dated, but they had shared one magical night together at Jacob's family's summer lake house. Oksana still remembered every little detail about that night, except for the name of the lake. All she remembered was that it was an Indian name she had never been able to spell or pronounce. With no one eating dinner, except for Darren Schnellenberger, who was going to town on an alligator, we headed to the parking lot to watch the queens and almost queens compete in the mile run. Bull Jaworski had tried to measure out a mile with his metric ruler, but then quickly realized he had no idea how many meters were in a mile, and so it was agreed by all four participants that ten times around the parking lot was close enough. Isaac Zeichner, the moderator, provided the starting signal. The signal was Isaac Zeichner saying, Go! Even though Boljaworski had said that if Isaac wanted the race started properly, there was a pistol in the trunk of his car. 
we sat in the parking lot, on traffic islands, and on the hoods of cars, and watched the queens and almost queens run. They ran barefoot, as the only shoes they had were three-inch heels. Carl Finkelstein said that you could get worms by running barefoot. Wally Mulrooney called Carl a liar. No, really, they can burrow into your skin and between your toes, said Carl Finkelstein. Then they travel through your bloodstream into your lungs, and then they end up in your intestines. Bullshit, said Wally Mulrooney. Let's settle this with a fight. You can't settle science with a fight, said Carl Finkelstein, and Wally Mulrooney popped him in the jaw. There were tensions at the reunion. Tenzin Tonpa wouldn't speak to that self-righteous asshole Donnie Bloomfield. Zoe Wessenberg wouldn't speak to that uppity bitch queen Michelle Kay. Jamal Gaines wouldn't speak to that ten-cent hoe Letitia Jackson. Letitia Jackson wouldn't speak to that worthless stick Jamal Gaines. Some tensions were old, others were new. The old tensions stretched back as far as 20 years, name-calling at recess, birthday party invitation snubs, amphibians stuffed inside the waistbands of pants, while the new tensions originated as recently as Tuesday, backstabbing, double-dealing, cheating, slandering, blackmailing, thieving. Don't believe the smiles in the class graduation photos, Eric Stamos said to Daphne Herbstreet. What? Daphne Herbstreet said. There were subtler tensions, too, of course. Rick Douglas and his wife Susan bickered intermittently about their high-speed internet provider. Carla Sheffield fished out a cigarette after catching her boyfriend Randy staring at Carol Potemkin's ass. Cole McKenna and Robbie Savage both went out of their way to not acknowledge the one magical night they had shared after the cast party for The Music Man. Instead, they spoke to each other very amicably about the weather, professional sports. It was agreed by both that the goddamn brewers had fucked themselves again. The homecoming queen runner-up won the mile run, Everyone went back inside to the Chandler room. Darren Schnellenberger was still there, tearing apart a squirrel carcass with his hands. Have some respect for yourself, Dana Stratmeyer said to Darren. <laughs> said Darren. Darren's mouth was full of squirrel. Since no one except Darren was touching the dinner, Illidy Murder offered to order everyone pizza. We said, no, that's okay, but Illidy Murder insisted. Ain't no thing, he said. How do fitty large half pepperoni half sausage sound? But what about the vegetarian option, said Nella Zeffirelli. Twenty all cheese for my sexy veggie mamas, said Illidy Murder, although it was assumed that men and unsexy women would be allowed to eat the all cheese pizzas as well.
while we waited for the pizzas to arrive, the caterers took turns posing with Jacob Stensler's ashes. Some thought this was in poor taste, as the caterers weren't wearing any pants, but Doug Weisenhut said it's what Jacob would have wanted. Rodney Feldman, the caterer and alumnus who had forgotten to ask off of work, had played on the varsity football team with Jacob. They had never won a game, but they had still done well with girls. Look, Ruth Vanderwall's here, said Rodney Feldman to Jacob's Ashes, and Kaki Klaus, and Mandy Fitzgibbon, and is that Julia Cranshaw? Rodney remembered the one magical night he had shared with Julia Cranshaw in a Dairy Queen he had broken into after closing, and he started to cry. Doug Weisenhut snapped his picture. Perfect, Doug said, handing Rodney a tissue. Just what Jacob would have wanted. After the queens and almost queens had hydrated themselves following their mile run, it was time for the second physical challenge. The second physical challenge was originally going to be jello wrestling, but Nadia Jesmani protested that jello wrestling was sexist. How about, instead of jello, romaine lettuce, suggested Isaac Zegner. Nadia Jasmani said romaine lettuce would be okay, and the caterers carpeted the Chandler room floor with Caesar salad. Where was the Caesar salad during dinner? Samantha Schultz singer asked the caterers. The caterers shrugged and sprinkled the four contestants with croutons and parmesan cheese. The queens and almost queens were still in their little black dresses and were extremely sweaty. Their faces were red, their feet bloody, their hair disheveled, their thoughts consumed with a victory. Hey, I never agreed to condiments, said Nadia Jasmani, as the caterers doused the contestants with Caesar dressing. But it was too late. The queens and almost queens were already oiled up from head to toe. Go, said Isaac Zeigner. Wojciechowski shook his head. He had a rustling bell in the trunk of his car. With cans in your hand, you will stand and demand To live a new start out with the books you know They will die at your feet and you will laugh at the fate Cause lemon and the paper taste alike Care to not need and somewhere and to beat it Jack's for the top of the picket heart Choosing the heart of the picture comes at the top of the hill As it falls down, the into the sun your heart sets sail and as your organs leave they say goodbye watch them dance
pizza arrived during the final round of the Caesar salad wrestling. The two runners-up were wrestling each other for first place, extremely delicately. They didn't want to hurt each other. They bore each other no ill will. Illidy Murder paid and tipped the delivery man, and also autographed an insulated delivery bag. The delivery man said everyone at the 145 Chancellor Street Domino's was a big fan. Illidy Murder's posse distributed the pizzas equitably to each table, and we devoured the pizza hungrily. Samantha Schultz Singer asked the caterers if we could now have the Caesar salad. Of course, said a caterer in a Victoria's Secret V-string. Help yourselves, as she pointed to the floor. The rumors concerning the catering company's owner intensified. Where did the rumors come from? There were rumors about where the rumors came from. That's how intensified the rumors had become. It was said the catering company owner had ties to radical Zionists. It was said he was the Antichrist, that he was a one-man Islamist sleeper cell, that he possessed the ability to walk through walls. Why aren't you wearing any pants, Johanna Bloom said to Rodney Feldman. Rodney said, let me get my manager, and then asked if anyone could lend him a magic marker. Darren Schnellenberger helped himself to some Caesar salad off the floor and got in the way of the rustlers. Stop, said Isaac Zeigner. Stop. Bull Jaworski mentioned he had a whistle in the trunk of his car. Johnny Zalewski staggered from table to table, showing everyone his face on a for sale sign. Look at that, he said. Isn't that something? That's something, we said, which was inherently true. After the restart, the prom queen runner-up won the final round of Caesar Salad Wrestling. She and the homecoming queen runner-up were both tied for first place. Let's see how well you two do in the battle of wits, said the homecoming queen. Scoreboard, said the homecoming queen runner-up. There wasn't actually a scoreboard. It was just a figure of speech. As we ate our dinner, more and more celebrity impersonators wandered into our midst. The reunion organizers were all drunk, and therefore less vigilant. They didn't notice Jerry Lewis slow dancing with Dean Martin, or Joseph Stalin pouring Everclear into Liza Minnelli's mouth. John Lennon came, so did Charlie Chaplin, and Abraham Lincoln, and Marianne from Gilligan's Island. They had all heard there was pizza. Would they feed you at your retreat? Illidy Murder asked an Illidy Murder impersonator. Fruit snacks, said the Illidy Murder impersonator. Ritz crackers, cheese bread, Poland Spring bottled water. Carl Finkelstein said over one-fourth of bottled water was actually bottled tap water, and Wally Mulrooney said Carl could suck it. Is Stalin really a celebrity, wondered Terry Pastorelli. He was big in Russia, said Jamie O'Toole. Wonderful memories were shared at the reunion. 
Tina Nadler remembered the times she would get free blizzards from Karen Asnian, a Dairy Queen. Dwight Hagland remembered the times he and Earl Skog would play Mario Kart 64 while listening to Pink Floyd's Adam Hart Mother. Elle Steinhauser remembered her locker combination. Jeff Ravello remembered every profanity he ever etched into Mr. Carpenter's desk. Rhoda Eisenstein remembered every topping that came with a number two from Big Sven's Super Subs. Austin Quinn remembered every lyric to Gary Indiana and 76 trombones. Other memories were not shared. Madeline Woodford reading the same medical brochure over and over in the clinic waiting room. Jawanda Jackson reading her name over and over in indelible marker on the bathroom stall. Jordan Kruger preparing the materials. Rachel Kempster writing her parents the note. Isis Cuomo getting into the station wagon. Reese Stickler handing Paul Odenfeld that last bottle of Corona. Did we come here to remember? If so, what did we hope to gain by remembering? Had we left valuable wisdom behind? Had we let vital knowledge pass through us, accumulate in our school's plumbing and ductwork? Were the answers to our most fervent prayers circulated and recirculated in the hallways of our clueless youth? Sophie Bluestein remembered not knowing how to file a W-4 form. Adam Lux remembered not knowing the child support laws of Washington State. Janie Kennedy remembered not knowing that tuna contains mercury, that tap water contains chlorine, that Starbucks Frappuccino lights contain gluten, that chocolate contains trace amounts of shit, that every woman should own a single-breasted blazer, that a seamless bra is a must for the summer, that Zoloft tablets come in 25, 50, and 100 milligrams, that you need to get on the best preschool's waiting lists as soon as your child is born. We remembered study hall. We remembered homeroom. We remembered the fertile smell of fresh-cut grass. With dinner nearly finished, it was time for speeches. Speeches were absolutely necessary at a reunion, for reasons none of us could articulate. The first speech was to be given by Walter Grogan, who no one really remembered, but who is now extravagantly wealthy from fertilizer money. But unfortunately, Walter was stuck at LaGuardia, so the reunion organizers had a Martin Luther King Jr. impersonator speak in his stead. Hello, class of 2000, said the Martin Luther King Jr. impersonator. Is anyone the owner of a red Chrysler Sebring license plate 4BXG29? No one responded. Okay, your car is about to be towed, the Martin Luther King Jr. impersonator said. Thank you very much. He then walked back to his table, and there was scattered applause. There was a nostalgia table at the reunion. Guests had been asked to bring photos, posters, 
t-shirts, trophies, and other items of sentimental value to the reunion, and the reunion organizers had showcased the items on a large oak table near the Chandler Room's main entrance. There was a photo of Darcy Hessler winning the 1999 All-Regions Cross-Country Invitational. There was a photo of Ethan Holvek closing his eyes and giving two thumbs up. There were swim team ribbons, golf trophies, playbills for Into the Woods, Les Miserables, The Music Man, letter jackets, never-returned history textbooks, student activity fee receipts. What was nostalgia, exactly? What was sentimental value? There were protractors. There were tardy slips. There were plastic jack-o'-lanterns full of expired condoms, and copies of The Great Gatsby with disconnected phone numbers written in the margins. We looked so young in the nostalgia table photos. Jonah Conkle had a mohawk. Denise Holland had terrible acne. Mitchell Winnicky still had the right half of his face. Some of us spent thirty minutes poring over each photograph, marveling over each trophy, fondling each jacket, each t-shirt. Some of us walked right past and ordered from the open bar. To each his own, said Eric Stamos to Ramona Hartley. What? said Ramona Hartley. After the Martin Luther King Jr. impersonator had returned to his seat, other speakers spoke. Carly Cashman, Dwayne Danielson, Carlton Chandler, the great-grandson of the Carlton Chandler for whom the Chandler Room was named. Thank you for celebrating my great-grandfather's legacy by enjoying the hotel's state-of-the-art banquet hall facilities, said the younger Carlton Chandler. As my great-grandfather often said, monthly and seasonal rates are available on request. Meanwhile, at our individual tables, we gave our own speeches. Nikola Flash spoke about the merits of a home birth. Rusty Cornelius spoke about the Mexicans and the Jews. Colin Biller spoke about his top four favorite speeches of all time. Number four, Gettysburg Address. Number three, I Have a Dream. Number two, Win-Win for the Gipper and Newt Rockney All-American. Number one, Sermon on the Mount. Top four, said Kelvin Colusi. Who makes lists of four? Rusty Cornelius said the Mexicans and the Jews did. Lillian Dykstra said she would have put Pericles' funeral oration at number two. Johnny Zalewski said, wait until you see this, and disappeared into the parking lot. Doug Weisenhut said, scooch in a little closer, but don't block the urn. Brian Kramer said he would have put FDR's Pearl Harbor address to the nation at number three. Once the speeches were over, Isaac Seitner announced over the microphone that it was now time for the Battle of Wits. The queens and almost queens were walking from table to table, asking if anyone had a change of clothes they could borrow. It must have been very uncomfortable for them, slathered with all that Caesar dressing. Nadia Jasmani reminded everyone she had never agreed to condiments. 
Isaac Zeigner said that his Lexus had recently been making a weird clicking noise inside the dash, and whoever could diagnose and fix the problem first would earn 15 points. Probably one of the HVAC servo motors, said the homecoming queen's boyfriend. Hey, no coaching, shrieked the homecoming queen runner-up. The prom queen refused to participate. She said automobile repair didn't constitute a battle of wits. Joel Nast, an auto mechanic, said, Now listen here. Don Uhardy said, How about, instead of car repair, Sudoku? Bull Jaworski said he had a 13,000-piece puzzle of the Last Supper in the trunk of his car. The queens, almost queens, and Isaac Zeichner argued, and the rest of us lost interest. The DJ turned Isaac's microphone off and played TLC's No Scrubs, and we danced. Rodney Feldman was allowed to dance, so long as he also carried his tray of tomato bruschetta. Ross Schmelzer asked us if, during the best moment of our lives, we were wearing pants. Yes, said Sebastian Teschendorf. Yes, said Colleen Jenkins. Yes, said Terry Poloni. No, said Alex Berenbaum. How about cutoffs, said Spencer Bergman Caligari. Joel Nast asked Isaac Zeichner if his Lexus made the clicking noise all the time, or just when he ran his heater or air conditioner. Kathleen Proctor told the homecoming queen she could borrow a t-shirt and some size 2 jeans. The homecoming queen said she was a size 1. Joseph Stalin posed with Jacob Stinsler's ashes, as did Mary Ann from Gilligan's Island, as did Sonny Bono. Ashes are ashes, said Darren Schnellenberger, dismissively. Bull Jaworski said he had size 1 women's jeans in a variety of popular styles and brands in the trunk of his car. Why did we come to the reunion? What did we hope to learn? What did we hope to achieve? Was the reunion a ritual? A collective commemoration of community? Of shared experience? Of elapsed time? Was it a contest? Who has a PhD? Who has a Mercedes? Who has Billy Crystal's cell number? Who has an unexpectedly attractive spouse? Was it merely a party? Appetizers, small talk, alcohol, indefensive music. Or was it something else entirely? Why was the Chandler Room East north of the Chandler Room? Why weren't the caterers wearing any pants? The best moment of my life, I was wearing 100% cotton chinos, said Edgar Steinhauer. Can you sign these gym floorboards? You know, for the raffle, Marsha Feathers asked Illidy Murder. Ain't no thing, Illidy Murder said, and asked for a magic marker. It was late, relatively speaking. We were tired. Many of us were drunk. Some were unconscious or physically ill. D. Schwartzkopf's name tag had disappeared from its table. No one was sure if it had been stolen or had been claimed by the real D. Schwartzkopf. No one was sure if there was a real D. Schwartzkopf. Life was full of uncertainty. Burke Kaplan said he knew the catering company's owner, casually. 
The owner's younger brother Fletcher owed Burke Kaplan $87. Burke Kaplan said the owner had probably written the caterer's pantslessness into their contract. Why would he have done a thing like that? asked Greta Honecker. You really want to get that sort of thing in writing, said Burke Kaplan. The prom and homecoming queens had officially withdrawn from the rematch. They were now completely sober. Illidy Murder had lent them clothing from his own signature line of women's urban apparel, Illigirl, and so they were showering in the hotel's pool locker room. The almost queens were too furious to shower. They drank hard liquor from the bottle at the bar and pouted. Johnny Zalewski showed them a sticker that said, Sold by Johnny Zalewski, the real estate king, and said, Isn't that something? Pete Genter asked them if it was really true that the prom queen could speak to animals. Doug Weisenhut said, Smile, and also, Hold this urn. Darren Schnellenberger asked them if they wouldn't mind rubbing their forearms on his salad. started to leave. Marcia Feathers said no, we couldn't leave, we had to stay for the raffle. Twenty-five floorboards from the old gym were being raffled, five of them signed by none other than international superstar Illidy Murder. We stayed. Cameron Conlon won a signed floorboard, Diego Pina won an unsigned floorboard, and so did Georgia Smith. What are we supposed to do with a floorboard, Georgia Smith's husband said. Cherish it, said Lucia Martin. Build a birdhouse with it, said Lance Crowley Sachs. Buy a bunch of other floorboards, said Curtis Hudson. Receive the proper training. Acquire the necessary tools. Consult the appropriate authorities. And follow the correct procedures. And then, in time, you will have a floor. We left. Marcia Feathers said no, we couldn't leave, but this time gave no reason why we should stay. Some of us walked to our cars. Others walked straight to our hotel rooms. The DJ packed up his equipment. The caterers cleaned up the Caesar salad. Carlton Chandler stared for 15 minutes at the oil painting of his great-grandfather in the hotel lobby. Darren Schnellenberger was carried out. It took three Elvis impersonators to get him out of the Chandler room. Where are you staying tonight, Darren? asked one of the Elvis impersonators. Trina Samuelson? said Darren Schnellenberger. Oh, no, said the Elvis impersonator. I just took her name tag. You tell your son of a bitch brother Andre that I want my $56, said Darren Schnellenberger. The Illidy murder impersonator roamed the parking lot, offering to sign the raffle winner's floorboards for five bucks. Hey everybody, I've got a share on the line, said the Sonny Bono impersonator. Ready? One, two, three. Some of us were disappointed by the reunion's lack of significance. Others were pleased with its wealth of significance. Others were neither disappointed nor pleased. Still others ignored its significance or lack thereof entirely. Bull Jaworski said he had the reunion significance in the trunk of his car. 
we retrieved our items of sentimental value from the nostalgia table unless we forgot to. Benjamin Krakauer left behind his most improved outfielder trophy. Cammie Crinkler left behind her five-paragraph essay on the major themes in Beowulf. The reunion organizers argued over what should be done with the nostalgia table's abandoned items. Everyone wanted to safeguard these important relics of the past, but everyone also had limited trunk space. Kim Youngblood suggested taking archival photos. Nancy Drexler suggested talking to Wynne Baker about getting a deal on rental storage. Troy Hanlon suggested that if the reunion organizers could simply perceive these items as being unimportant, possessing no value whatsoever, then they could just throw everything in the garbage, no problem. Debbie Panzini said brilliant, and suggested that Troy Hanlon chair the next reunion. Everyone agreed. They patted Troy Hanlon on the back, got a garbage can, and cheerfully swiped every last item on the nostalgia table into the trash. In the parking lot, they all admired Troy Hanlon's 99 Chevy Suburban. Everyone was envious of the Suburban's trunk space. After the reunion, we returned to our lives. Some of us were pleased to return to our lives. Others were displeased. Still others didn't care either way. Most of us returned to jobs. Some of our jobs were important. Others were not important. Others' importance was unclear. Additionally, sometimes the important jobs weren't important to the people who did them, whereas the unimportant jobs were very important to the people who did them, but not important to anyone else. Jobs were confusing, and so was the concept of importance. It's best not to overthink these things, Eric Stame was said to the girl behind the counter at Dairy Queen. What? said the girl behind the counter at Dairy Queen. A grand total of 47 reunion guests performed sexual acts the night of the reunion. This number has been verified. It is not due to mathematical or clerical error. In all likelihood, at least some of the sexual acts would not have occurred had there been no reunion. But who knows? Life is full of uncertainty. Illidee Murder said as much after performing a sexual act with the prom queen runner-up. Some of us were inspired by the reunion. Others were discouraged. Some promised to return in ten years. Others vowed never to return. Others vowed only to return once the world had learned to fear our terrible power. We ate, drank, slept, woke. We watched television, bought groceries, filed W-4 forms, conceived human life. It was all very important, or else it wasn't. Terry Pastorelli said he could lean either way. Dirk Knobloker said, Life's a beach, and then you swim. Lou Francini said, You don't know what you got till it's gone. Steve Heisler said, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. Barry Ornstein said, Singapore Sling. June Carmichael said, Mama, Mama. Mama. No. Mama.
Darlene Kleinhofer said, I demand to speak to a manager. Jacob Stinsler's mother said, Jacob? Cole McKenna said, It's not the heat, really. It's the humidity. Sam Levinson said, It's not the size of the boat. It's the motion of the ocean. Madeline Woodford said, It's not so black and white. Elaine Steinbacher said, It's not my fault. The catering company's owner said, My wife wore those underpants. Johnny Zalewski said, One sweet day. The prom queen said, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. Rodney Feldman said, Port Salute, Oysters Rockefeller, Steak Tartare, Foie Gras. Jamal Gaines said, Letitia, why you always be trying me? Rick Douglas said, Susan, I think I know how to reset the goddamn modem. Glenn Van Sicklin said, The best moment of my life. I was wearing 505 regular fit Levi's. The homecoming queen said, Why does every used car dealership have so many goddamn American flags? Reese Stickler said, I'm sorry. Janie Kennedy said, The key things are volunteer service hours and extracurricular activities. Lucia Martin said, Life is beautiful. Vince Strickland said, Look, Brandy, I've been thinking. Rusty Cornelius said, 250 convenience fee? Rock-sucking Jews. Carlton Chandler said, Or, as my great-grandfather would say, Please conserve natural resources by reusing your towels during your stay. Isaac Zeichner said, It makes the clicking noise whether I'm driving or not driving, whether the air conditioner is on or off, whether I'm in park or in neutral. Oksana Gaznayev said, Kawish Walanavetim. Marcus Lepeska said, The goddamn brewers have fucked themselves again. Carl Finkelstein said, our lives are mere insignificant blips relative to the vastness of the ever-expanding universe. Wally Marooney said, Fuck you, Carl. Darren Schnellenberger said, What's done is done. Illa D. Murder said, Nah, girl, ain't no thing. Lori Baumgartner said, Unforgivable. Boljaworski said, What's unforgivable is what's in the trunk of my car. The Martin Luther King Jr. impersonator said, I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted and every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain and the crooked places will be made straight and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. The Joseph Stalin impersonator said, Jit Stalaluce Tavarishi the Sonny Bono impersonator said, I got you, babe. I got you, babe. I got you, babe. We said, So, what do you do?
I